Volume three, chapter twelve of the old manor house. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The old manor house by Charlotte Turner Smith. Volume three, chapter twelve. By the care of this excellent man, aided by the medical skill of the surgeon of the regiment, Orlando in about a fortnight arose as it were from the grave. His senses returned long before his strength, and with them all the sad recollection of his disastrous voyage. Almost the first use he made of his returning reason was to implore the lieutenant to inquire for Captain Warwick, of whom he found, with inexpressible sorrow, that no intelligence had been received and that he was believed by his brother officers to be in one of those transports that had gone to the bottom. In a few days a negro servant inquired for Ensign Somerive, and Orlando in a moment recollected that it was Perseus, the man who had served Warwick some years. He now hoped to have heard some account of his sister and his friend that might have quieted his extreme uneasiness but the sight of perseus only served to increase it for he learned from him that captain warwick arrived at portsmouth the evening the first transport sailed and that by his interest with the captain of the frigate in which the negro embarked and some persons still higher in power that the ship was delayed for some days, at the end of which Warwick promised to appear, but as he did not, not even at the end of some hours longer than the time he required, the captain would have incurred too great a risk by waiting longer, and therefore got under way with so strong and favourable a wind that they overtook the rest of the fleet two days before they made the Pike of Tenerife. This circumstance, however, Perseus said, was the only one that gave him hope, for he knew his master, thus missing his passage, would hire a vessel to convey him, which would probably not only take up some days, but hardly sail as they did, and therefore there was reason to hope that he might have escaped the storm in which they suffered, and it was improbable that the lady whom Orlando had seen perish and afterwards heard was the wife of an officer of foot, was his sister. On being questioned further, the negro, who was very intelligent, said that Captain Warwick had ordered him with a great part of his baggage on board, and that he knew his master expected a lady to go with him, but he knew not whom. The baggage was landed and put into Orlando's lodging, where Perseus desired leave to wait upon him, and where the attention of this faithful fellow, and the hopes he gave him that Isabella and her husband were safe, contributed greatly to his recovery. A fortnight had now elapsed since his landing, and no news of his sister reached him, nor had he a single line from England as he had been taught to expect. The sad scene at home, where he feared Isabella's elopement had created insupportable sorrow, cruelly tormented him, 
and the image of Monimia in continual tears and hopeless solitude pursued him insensibly. A thousand times during the paroxysms of his fever, he had insisted upon having pen and ink to write to her and to his family, and he began many letters to his father, recommending Monimia to his protection, and apologising for his conduct in regard to his sister. But the lieutenant, Mr. Fleming, had never sent any of these incoherent letters. Orlando had now strength of body and of mind enough to look them over, but circumstance as he was about Isabella, he now hardly knew better than he did then what to say that should not aggravate all of the pain he lamented. Something, however, it was necessary to write, as ships were now daily returning to England, and not to send some intelligence of himself would be more distressing to his friends than the ignorance he must avow as to the fate of his sister. Another idea, however, struck him, that some discovery, or even her own fears, as the moment arrived when she was to leave her father's house, might have prevented the departure of Isabella from home, and that even her intention of doing so might be unknown. This made him hesitate whether to name her at all, and at length he determined he would not, since it would be only giving to his father an exchange, but not an alleviation of uneasiness. He wrote then these unsatisfactory letters to his family, and afterwards one to Monomia. He gave in all of them the best account he could of himself, described his voyage as tedious and stormy, and said slightly that he had been ill on his first landing, but was now recovered, and should soon proceed to join the body of his regiment with the northern army under Bourgoyne. But such was the agitation of his spirits while he was writing, from the lively idea he had of the sensations his letter would give to those to whom they were addressed, that it brought on an excess of fever, and he was confined for a few days. Nor had he quite recovered his usual health when the commander of the two companies, despairing of seeing the men who were missing arrive, was ordered to muster all that remained of the two companies, and, with a party of dismounted dragoons, to find their way to the army, which was now on its march from Canada to Albany, in order to form a junction, or at least open a communication between that army and New York. The whole body, thus destined to force its way through an enemy's country, consisted, including American volunteers, of about two hundred and fifty men, but they were not encumbered with artillery, and were almost all young men eager for actual service, and in no haste to join an army, of whose brilliant success they formed the greatest expectations. It was on the 6th of August that this small party left New York, and now Orlando, who had hitherto been in garrison, began to perceive all the horrors and devastations of the war. The country lately so flourishing and rising so rapidly into opulence presented nothing but the ruins of houses, from whence their miserable inhabitants had either been driven entirely or murdered, or had, of the burnt rafters and sad relics of their former comfortable dwellings, 
constructed huts on their lands merely because they have nowhere else to go even from these wretched temporary abodes they were often driven to make way for the english soldiers and their women and children exposed to the tempest of the night or what was infinitely more dreadful to the brutality of the military in a war so protracted and carried on with such various success these scenes of devastation had occurred so often that the country appeared almost depopulated or the few stragglers who yet lingered round the places most eagerly contended for had been habitated to suffer till they had almost lost the semblance of humanity the party had now marched about seventy miles and as they carried their provisions with them which it was not possible to do in a great quantity it became necessary for them to encamp and send out foraging parties to obtain a supply before it was actually wanted it was on the edge of one of those morasses which are called by the natives safanas encircled on all sides by woods that they formed this small camp where the colonel to whom the conduct of this expedition was entrusted fortified it as well as such a situation would admit but lieutenant fleming whose attachment to orlando a long intercourse of mutual kindness had now greatly strengthened pointed out to him in confidence the deficits of the state the defects of the situation thus chosen and declared that if any body of american troops or rebels as they were then called was in the country they must be surrounded and either compelled to surrender or fight their way through it happened however that for many days they remained unmolested some recruit of provisions was obtained and the plan of their future march settled the parties who went out saw no enemies to oppose them and orlando had now an opportunity of observing this wonderful country so extremely unlike england that it appeared to him to be indeed a new world every object seemed formed upon a larger scale the rivers more frequent than in england were broader than the most broadest of ours even on their approach to the sea and the woods larger than the oldest european forests even those that kings have reserved for their pleasure in france or england consisted often of trees of such magnitude and beauty as must be seen before a perfect idea can be formed of them what orlando had often seen cherished in england gardens as beautiful shrubs here rose into plants of such majestic size and foliage as made the british oak poor in comparison and under them innumerable shrubs of many of which he knew not the names grew in profusion these woods however had in many places suffered like the rest of the country and in some had been set on fire in others the trees had been felled as means of temporary defence and orlando whose early and ingenuous philanthropy had of late been often injured by a painful sensation of disgust could not help remarking with a sigh that man seemed not only a creature born to consume the fruits of the earth but to wound and deform the bosom of that earth and he found himself 
almost involuntary asserting to some of the most gloomy aphorisms of Rousseau. But he was yet a novice, and had only of late understood as well as a partial representation of the cause by his otherwise candid friend Fleming would let him understand, the origin of the quarrel in which he had drawn his sword. The scenes, however, he had already been witness to were, he thought, not to be justified by any cause, but his fellow-soldiers seemed to see them in a very different light, and to consider the English-Americans as men of an inferior species, who resistance to the measure, whatever those might be, of the mother country deserved every punishment that the most ferocious mode of warfare could inflict and even the brave and generally humane Fleming endeavoured to convert Orlando, whose scruples as to the justice of the war became greater the more he heard of its origin. He assured him that a soldier never thought of examining into such matters. "'It is,' said he, "'our business to fight, never to ask what for, for if every man, or even every officer in the service, were to set about thinking,' It is ten to one, if any two of them agreed as to the merits of the cause, a man who takes the king's money is to do as he is bid, and never debate the matter. For my part, I have heard, while I was in England, a great deal of clamour upon the subject, and it has been called a war upon the people, and therefore an unpopular war. I am no politician nor do I desire to enter into a discussion about taxation and representation, which these fellows have made the ground for their resistance. There is no end of the nonsense that may be talked in favour of their rebellion, nor the pleas of the ministerial party. For myself, as I was brought up in the army, I have always cut the matter very short. The sword is my argument, and I have sold that to my king and therefore must use it in his service, whatever and whenever it may be pointed out to me. This way of settling the matter was, however, so far from being convincing to Orlando that it gave him new cause for reflection. He had always been told that the will of the people was the great resort in the British government, and that no public measure of magnitude and importance could be decided upon but by the agreement of the three estates. Yet the present war carried on against a part of their own body, and in direct contradiction of the rights universally claimed, was not only pursued at a ruinous expense, but in absolute contradiction to the wishes of the people who were taxed to support it. Orlando did not comprehend how this could be. He could not, however, though so often assure that it was no part of his business, help thinking about it. And an American prisoner, who was brought to their little camp by a scouting party just before it broke up, assisted very much to clear up his ideas on this subject. He was a man in middling life, and had kept a store at New York, but having taken part with his own countrymen, had been sent by them to Congress where, being a man of strong, plain understanding, he had joined heartily in all the measures of resistance, and afterwards gone into the field for the same purpose. 
but hearing that his wife, an Englishwoman, whom he passionately loved, and his only son, a boy of seven years old, were arrived at New York from England, whither they had gone two years before, he had obtained leave to quit his command for a short time, and had set out alone, and in disguise, in the intention of reaching the neighbourhood of New York, where, at the house of one of his temporising friends, he had appointed his wife and child to meet him, in the hope of conveying them himself, through a country abounding in perils, to a place of present safety. But when he was within a hundred miles of the place he wished to reach, a distance that in America is reckoned a trifle, he had been met by a party of Indians, whom the British commanders had lately let loose upon the Americans, and having narrowly escaped being sculped by promises and some deceptions very allowable in such a situation, he was brought by the Red Warriors to the small camp of their allies the English, of which they had just received intelligence. As this unfortunate American immediately disclosed to the commanding officer who he really was, and for the purpose going to new york he was deemed of consequence enough to be sent thither a prisoner until this could be done he was alternately guarded by the british officers a circumstance that gave orlando an opportunity he never before had of hearing the american party tell their own story which served only to excite his pity for them and a pity not unmixed with respect while his astonishment increased as he considered the infatuation of the British cabinet, or rather the easy acquiescence of the British people. If his concern was called forth by witnessing the anguish of mind endured by his new acquaintance when he thought of his wife and child, anguish with which Orlando well knew how to sympathise, his surprise and curiosity were not less awakened by the appearance of the native American auxiliaries who had been called to the aid of the English. They now consisted of a party near forty, most of them young men, and headed by a celebrated veteran warrior, who was distinguished by a name which expressed in their language the bloody captain. The savage appearance, and the more savage thirst of blood which they avowed, that base avidity for plunder, with an heroic contempt of danger, pain, and death, made them altogether objects of abhorrence, mingled with something like veneration. But the former sentiment altogether predominated when Mr. Jamieson, the prisoner, informed him that among all the unfair advantages which the colonists complained of in the manner of carrying on the war, there was none that seemed so unjustifiable at that of sending forth the Indians. Footnote 7 Several nations of savages were inducted to take up arms as allies to his Britannic majesty. Not only the humanity, but the policy of employing them was questioned in Great Britain. The opposers of it contended that Indians were capricious, inconstant, and intractable, their rapacity insanitate, and their actions cruel and barbarous. At the same time their services were represented as uncertain, and that no dependence could be placed on their engagements. On the other hand, the zeal of the British minister for reducing the revolted colonies 
was so violent as to make them, in their excessive wrath, forget that their adversaries were men. They contended that, in their circumstances, every appearance of lenity, by inciting to disobedience, and thereby increasing the objects of punishment, was eventual cruelty. In their opinion, partial servity was general mercy, and the only method of speedily crushing the rebellion was to envelop its abettors in such complicated distress as by rendering their situation intolerable would make them willing to accept the proffered blessing of peace ramsay's history of the american revolution the happy effects of this barbarous policy never appeared of the tragical scenes it occasioned the reader if he or she delight in studying circumstances in this war redounding to the honour of british humanity is referred to the annual register for seventeen seventy nine where an account is given of the expedition of sixteen hundred men among whom one-fourth were indians the rest british americans in the interests and service of government these americans were then called tories to the forts kingston and wilkesburg in the settlement of wyoming on the susquehanna those who have so loudly exclaimed against a whole nation struggling for its freedom on account of the events of the past summer events terrible enough god knows are entreated to recollect how much the exploits of this expedition even as relative by our own historian exceed anything that happened on the tenth of august the second of september or at any one period of the execrated revolution in france and own that there are savages of all countries even of our own end of footnote seven against them and when orlando saw in the hands of the bloody captain eleven sculps some of them evidently those of women and children others of very old and consequently defenceless men many of them fresh which he said with an air of triumph he had taken from the enemies of the king of england within three weeks the young unhardened englishman shuddered with horror and blushed for his country he could not help speaking warmly on this subject to fleming who answered calmly it was very true that arming the indians was a very severe measure and their cruelty what we ourselves he said so loudly complained of in the last war but after all my friend in war every advantage is taken by both sides and our government has considered that if by this dreadful sort of warfare they can the sooner conquer the rebels and reduce them to obedience it is in fact best for them footnote eight the same sort of sophistry was used by the monster catherine de medicis to urge her son the infamous charles the ninth to the massacre of the protestants in fifteen seventy two what pity said she do we not shew in being cruel what cruelty would it not be to have pity end of footnote eight orlando still unable to digest or approve such a doctrine could never hear of the ferocity with which these red warriors treated their prisoners without disgust with some of the younger among them however who were less inured to blood he formed some kind of acquaintance and learned some of their words one of these he had distinguished from the rest by remarking his more open countenance 
his more gentle manners, and by hearing that he had, at the risk of his own life, saved a woman from the fury of his relation, the bloody captain, when he was on the point of killing her with his tomahawk. This woman, whom they had found wandering in the woods, whither she had been driven by the British troops, who had burned her little farm and killed her husband, the young Indian, who was known by the name of Wolf Hunter, had conducted in safety to a fort garrisoned by her own countrymen, again hazarding his own life to preserve hers. The secret sympathy between generous minds seems to exist throughout the whole humankind, for this young warrior became soon as much attached to Orlando as his nature allowed him to be to anybody, and when they left their camp and continued their march, after having dispatched their prisoner to New York with as strong an escort as they could spare, the wolf-hunter constantly marched by the side of his new friend, and between the little English he had picked up and Orlando's unusual aptness to learn languages, which had however been little exercised till now, he contrived to acquire a good deal of the customs of the Indians of North America, of which he hitherto had known but little. But in regard to their wars, the more he heard of them, the more unpardonable it seemed to him to be in the managers of the war at home to authorise them to take up the hatchet. After a very fatiguing march of many days, during which their Indian associates were eminently useful to them in guiding their way through woods and morasses, where they were least likely to meet parties of the colonists superior to their own, they reached the place of rendezvous, where there was probably of their finding the army they were to join. But it had pushed forward with so much celerity that they found themselves three days behind it. Its track, however, was sufficiently marked by smoking ruins, by the corn destroyed on the ground, and by the bodies of the dead, with whom they could not either encumber themselves or always stay to bury. The heart of Orlando sickened at the sigh, but he had little time for contemplation, for a strong detachment of Americans, who had harassed the rear of the British army, were now returning northward, and meeting this body of British, an engagement ensued in which the provincials were repulsed with some loss, but at the expense of nine men killed and eleven wounded. Among the latter was Lieutenant Fleming. His wound, however, was not dangerous, and Orlando had the satisfaction of showing, by his unwearied attendance on him, some part of the gratitude he felt for his former friendship. But the care necessary to the wounded, and the difficulties that their own people, in order to prevent their being followed by the enemy, had everywhere thrown in the way of their march, made it so tedious and so dangerous that they often despaired of effecting their purpose and when they at length arrived, quite worn down with fatigue, had the mortification to find the forces they joined in a situation very different from what they had been taught to expect. While the main body was equally disappointed that a stronger reinforcement was not sent them from New York, and a supply of provisions of which they began to apprehend the want, at the same time the march of such a small body of men, for so many hundred miles, through a country everywhere in arms against them was a matter of wonder and in the detail of their expedition 
given by the commanding officer to the general the conduct of orlando was spoken of in such high terms that he was desired to make him a compliment on the occasion orlando from his ignorance of the country had entertained a faint hope that he might find warwick already arrived in the northern army but he had the mortification not only to discover that his hope was groundless but his brother officers who knew him best were unanimously of opinion that he had perished at sea from orlando's account they were sure they said that nothing but some such disaster would have prevented their friend warwick from coming back with his company and orlando with increased anguish of heart accented apparently to this and forbore to say the reasons he had to feel that though this might not be exactly the truth the absence of warwick was every way to him a subject of uneasy conjecture and bitter regret end of volume three chapter twelve recording by elaine webb bristol england